0: Welcome back from spring break. I don't know if you're motivated or unmotivated coming off of a week of not being in class, but um, as we get started here, I want you to turn to someone next to you and ask and answer this question. Take about two minutes to do it. If you could interview anyone in history, dead or alive, and learn about what motivated them and why they did what they did, who would it be and... Yeah, why did you pick them? So turn to someone next to you, take two minutes, and then we'll come back. I would have some questions for Abraham Lincoln. I'm not telling. No. All right, why don't we come back together? All right, I'm just curious, since I wasn't in on the conversation. Who's like two people that you mentioned that you'd want to hear from. <laughs> nah, that wouldn't take very long. It's pretty, pretty, pretty simple. Uh, anyone else? Who would you want to interview? James, brother uh, brother. James, the brother of Jesus. Oh, that'd be interesting. So, what was it like, always being second best? <laughs> well, you can interview my brothers for that one, actually. Um, no, no, I'm just joking. Um, so tonight. Um, You know, I get an opportunity to be able to share with you guys as we talk about Philippians chapter 3. You know, whenever I read about a very influential person who has accomplished a lot in their lifetime, um, I'm always curious to know what drives them, kind of like what I was just asking you guys to discuss. You know, I want to know what makes them tick, what gets them out of bed each morning, what really allows them to have the drive and the focus and the impact that they had with their lives. So tonight, we're going to look at the third chapter of Philippians, and we're going to get to answer those questions for the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, while Jesus was, you know, most definitely the most influential person that's ever lived in history, I would argue that second to him is probably the Apostle Paul. I think he's the second most influential person probably that's ever lived, and definitely as it relates to the shaping of Western civilization. You know, his example, his writings, And those who learned from Paul had not only a profound impact all of the Mediterranean during Paul's lifetime, but we've experienced the ripple effects of Paul's life and legacy for 2,000 years now. Now, as influential as you and I hope to be over the course of our lifetime, I highly doubt that anyone's going to be referencing our name in 2,000 years, let alone probably 200 years. So I think we would be wise to pause and to learn from the apostle Paul's life if we want to have a life of real significance, if we want to have a life of real joy, if we want to have a life of real impact. So what was it that motivated Paul to live the life that he did? What was about, what about him, you know, what was his goal that kept him so focused and so drove him and so integrated everything that he did in his life that he had the life that he did? Well, we know From chapter one of Philippians, Aaron talked about a couple weeks ago, that Jesus Christ was very central in the life of Paul, so much so that you could say that Christ was his life. And then the week after that, Eric spoke on Philippians chapter two. We know from chapter two that Paul patterned his life after Christ and encouraged others to pattern their life after him. But to what end? What was the goal of making Christ his life and patterning his life after Christ? Well, according to Paul in Philippians chapter three, the goal was to know Christ. The goal was to know Christ. Paul put it this way in Philippians three, verse 10 and 11. He says that I may know him speaking about Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You know, Paul wasn't just talking about having a textbook knowledge of Jesus, nor was he talking about just having a personal relationship with Jesus as his Savior and Lord, because he had both of those already, and so did the Philippian Christians that he was writing to in this letter. So for Paul, when he said he wanted to know Jesus, what he meant by that was he wanted to know him experientially. He wanted to know him intellectually. He wanted to know him emotionally. He wanted to know him relationally in as deep and as a profound way as he possibly could. Now, as I was trying to wrap my mind around this idea that Paul's expressing here uh, of just wanting to know Christ so intimately and so deeply, I thought about one of the great symbols that God gives us to better know his and understand his relationship with his followers, which is the marriage between a man and a woman. Now, I'm about to be 37 years old next month, and I've known my wife, Katie, since I was 18 years old. And we got married a week after I turned 23. And next month, we'll celebrate 14 years of marriage. So it's safe to say that I know my wife, Katie, fairly well. But to this day, I'm still learning new things about her. And God has taken us through new experiences together that are really knitting our hearts together more and more as we move forward in life. And one of the things I've been telling Katie, particularly over this this past year, um, it's something that I've been praying for, is that I would know her better than any man has ever known his wife. And that we wouldn't just have a, a good enough marriage, but we would have the closest marriage that you could possibly have in this life, short of you know, whatever relationships we have in heaven. Now, why do I want that? What's what's the what's the reasoning behind that? Well, simply because I'm crazy about my wife, you know, and I really enjoy her and I enjoy being around her. That's right. <laughs> She's mine. Um, but um, now when I was younger and I would hear <clears throat> married guys talk about their wife being the best friend, honestly, my thought was, well, that's lame. You know, I would think the reason they say their wife is a best friend is they probably don't have any really close guy friends. And so, of course, their wife is their best friend. They don't have any other friends. Um, or I thought maybe, you know, maybe they're just pandering to the crowd. They're trying to get, the, oh, and this stuff. And I thought, that's lame. But honestly, after knowing Katie, you know, 19 years of my life, I can say with complete honesty, she is my best friend. You know, hands down, she is my favorite person to hang out with any day of the week. However, my endless pursuit of getting to know Katie is not the foundation of my marriage. Her commitment to me and my commitment to her and our mutual commitment to follow Jesus at the center of our marriage, that is the foundation of our marriage. And we made that commitment to each other on our wedding day in April 18th, 2009. And in the same way, Paul's singular driving goal to know Christ is not the foundation of his relationship with Christ. It's what's grown out of the foundation of his relationship. The foundation of Paul's relationship with Jesus Christ is the grace of God flowing into his life as Paul placed his trust solely in Jesus and not in himself. I'll say that again here. The foundation of Paul's relationship with Jesus Christ is the grace of God flowing into his life as he placed his trust solely in Jesus and not in himself. Trusting God to both forgive him and trusting God to really lead him on into his life. So Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says, for it is by grace. You have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, You see, it was the grace of God that saved Paul through faith in Christ, and it's what allowed him to even have a relationship with Christ. It wasn't his good works that allowed him to have a relationship, and the same is true for you and me. It's the grace of God through our faith and trust in him that allows us to even have a relationship, not our works. Paul restates it this way in Philippians 3.9. This is the verse right before the verse we looked at earlier about him saying he wanted to know Christ. He says this, Paul said he wanted to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, the foundation for Paul's righteousness and consequently the foundation for his good standing to even have a relationship with a perfect God was not Paul's ability to obey God's law perfectly, but his faith in Jesus Christ to really achieve right standing before God on Paul's behalf. That was the foundation. And this foundation of Paul's relationship with Christ and the Philippians' relationship with Christ was being challenged by a group of Jewish people known as Judaizers. And they were trying to convince the Philippian Christians that their trust in Jesus was not enough to be saved. So Paul warns the Philippians by saying this at the beginning of Philippians chapter 3. He says, beware of the dogs, Beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You know, in the Old Testament, God commanded uh, that all Jewish males be circumcised as an outward sign that they were God's people. But the circumcision didn't make them God's people, they were already God's people, and they got circumcised to show that they were God's people. In a similar way, as Christians, we get baptized as an outward sign to the world that we have died with and been raised to new life with Christ. But baptism doesn't make a person a Christian. Putting our faith in Jesus does. But since Jesus commanded us to go public with our faith, and through baptism, we get baptized. And so these Judaizers were telling these Philippian Christians that, hey, You're not circumcised. You need to get circumcised. You're know you not worshiping. You can't just worship in any place. You have to worship in a certain place. And there's certain dietary laws you have to do. There's all sorts of laws that you have to be able to figure out and, and follow if you want to actually be made right with God. And so Paul says emphatically, that is not true. That is not true. For we, speaking about himself and the Philippian Christians, he says, we are the true circumcision. Because we've been circumcised in our hearts. As Paul talked about in Romans 2.29, which I don't have on the screen, but you may want to just jot down for other reference. He says, you know, we've been given a new heart, guys. And because we have the Holy Spirit living beside us, we don't have to worship in a certain place. We get to worship in the spirit of God anywhere we want. And our hope and reason for boasting has nothing to do with our human accomplishment or rule keeping. But our hope and what we boast about is what Jesus has done on our behalf. And then Paul goes on to say, although... I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else had a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So what Paul is saying here is, guys, if anyone was going to be voted most likely to succeed when it came to obeying the law, it would be me. But what Paul knew was even his impressive bragging list wasn't enough to bridge the gap between him and God. And not only that, but in light of the amazing opportunity to really know Christ and be in a relationship with him for all eternity, his human list of accomplishments paled in comparison. So let me pause and ask you guys a few questions. What's on your bragging list? You all have one. Some of you share it a little more frequently than others. What's what, what are you putting your confidence in to be made right with God? Is it the church you grew up in or the family you grew up in or you went through a certain set of religious classes? What is it? You're better than the guy next to you? What are you putting time and energy into that you're hoping will provide the it factor to make your life have meaning and joy and impact in this world. You guys all have answers to these questions, whether you've sat down and thought about it or not. It'd be important to know what those answers are. See, if Paul were here today, he'd tell you and he'd tell me that if your driving goal is anything other than knowing Christ, it's too small a goal and it won't lead to the life that you were made for. And he goes on and says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This incredibly high value that Paul puts on knowing Christ above all other pursuits, as I was reading this, it made me think about one of Jesus' parables that he gives about the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. What's interesting is this man in this parable, he didn't care that it cost him everything he had to buy the treasure because to him it was worth it. He doesn't feel sorry about like, man, I had to empty my entire savings account to buy that field. He's like, do it in a heartbeat. Do it do it over again anytime. See, living in God's kingdom is worth it because you get to have a forever growing relationship with the king. And for Paul, it was the same way. There was nothing that he had accomplished or gained in the past or could accomplish or gain in the future that would compare to knowing Christ. He says, but whatever things were gained in me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And it goes on, it says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. 14 years ago, as I said earlier, I decided to marry my wife, Katie, and I pledged to be committed to her on that day for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And by making that commitment, what I was essentially doing was I was throwing my lot in with her And I was forever entwining our futures together forever, at least in this life. And so what joys came in this life as a result of being married to her, I'd get to participate in them. And whatever pain came in this life as a result of being married to her, I would also willingly participate in them because that meant I got to be with her. And for Paul, while I doubt he enjoyed suffering any kind of loss, he was willing to endure because it meant that he could know Christ better and experience His resurrection power in His life, and yet for some of you today, you know, even ones who claim to be followers of Jesus, that's not your felt experience, is it? If you're being honest with yourself, you know, there's a lot of us in this room that would say, you know, our number one goal is not to know Christ as richly and deeply as possible. Which begs the question, why not? What's the reason for that? There's probably a lot of reasons, but possibly one of these could be true for you. For some, it may be that you've you've been after eternal life, but you thought eternal life started when you got to heaven. But it turns out, eternal life doesn't start in a location; it starts in a relationship. Jesus said this in John seventeen three. He says, "And this is eternal life, that they may know you." the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You can actually step into eternal life right here and now if you decide to begin a relationship with Jesus by placing your trust in him as your Lord and Savior. You don't have to wait until you get to heaven because eternal life is found in a relationship. It's not found in a location. And in fact, if you do wait until you get to heaven, it's going to be too late. A second reason knowing Christ might not be your number one goal in life, is you've been presented, and by no fault of your own, but you've been presented with a caricature of Christ rather than the real thing. You know, maybe for you, some of you guys, Jesus has been presented to you as sort of a CEO type who is just interested in getting results out of you and kind of changing you into becoming the model employee or the model human. Or maybe Jesus has been presented to you as just a really nice guy, with a lot of really nice ideas, but yeah, for all given purposes, not really in touch with the reality. And so consequently, and I don't blame you, you don't want to relate to either of those kinds of people. I wouldn't either. But it turns out that Jesus is actually much more than that. He's the best friend you could ever ask for. He's the best teacher of all areas of life that you could ever learn from. He is the way and the truth and the life And he has all authority and all power over everything on earth. And yet, he cares so much for you and me that he gave up his own life for us so that we could not only be saved, but so we could relate to him. Not someone worth knowing. And then possibly a third reason knowing Christ is not your number one goal is you thought the goal and the prize was what Jesus could give you or do for you. You thought the goal of the prize was what Jesus could give you or do for you. But it turns out that the real prize is Jesus himself. And see, when you look at the godly people of the Bible and they um, and you look at their lives, they understood this. They enjoyed the blessings of God, but they were, af- they were not after, first and foremost, the blessings. They were after the blesser of the blessings. Moses understood this. That's why in Exodus 33, you know, God is frustrated with the Israelites. They're stubborn people. And so he says, Moses, take the Israelites and go on into the promised land. I'm going to send an angel to help clear out all the people there, but go in the promised land. I'm not going with you. And then after he tells us, Moses, you know, pleased with God says, God, if you don't go with us into the promised land, as amazing as the promised land is, I don't want to go. I, I, want, I want to be with you. Like, like, you need to go with us, otherwise What's the point in even going? You see, for Moses, he wasn't after the promised land. He was after God. He wanted to know God and he wanted to be with him. He wanted the blesser more than he wanted the blessings. David, the great king of Israel, who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, he understood this. When David composed Psalm 63, he was in the dry desert of Judah on the run for his life. Now, some Bible scholars think he might have written this when he was on the run for his life from Saul, who was trying to kill him so that David wouldn't become the next king in line. Some Bible scholars think David wrote this when he was on the run from his own son, Absalom, who was trying to take over the kingdom from David when he was king. Either way, if I was in David's situations, I can think of about a thousand things that I'd be crying out to God for when I was on the run in the desert. Things like revenge or safety or air conditioning, or Gatorade. I mean, like, there's lots of things that come to the list, like, pretty quickly off the top of my head, of, like, I'm in the dry desert, people are chasing after me, trying to kill me. And yet, look at what David's great desire is that he says in Psalm 63.1. He says, oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. See, above all else, David's soul thirsted for God. Not for comfort or status or safety. Not that those things are bad. But first and foremost, he wanted God. And so a question to ask yourself is, are you satisfied with just the blessings of Christ? Or do you want the real prize, which is knowing Christ? Are you satisfied with just the blessings of Christ or do you want the real prize, which is knowing Christ? And the choice is yours. You get to make that choice. No one's going to force you to make that choice. And further describing his pursuit of knowing Christ, Paul says this in Philippians 3, 12 to 14. He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. And that word perfect could be also translated mature. So you could say, Not only have I already obtained it or have already become mature, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As much as Paul intimately knew Jesus Christ, he knew there was so much more. To learn about him. And as much as Paul was mature, he knew there was a whole lot more maturing that needed to happen in his life so that how he lived would match up with what he had been declared to be in Christ. You see, in Christ, Paul, or any one of you, including myself, who has decided to follow Jesus, you have been declared righteous, you've been declared blameless, and you have become a child of God the moment you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You receive that status instantly. But for the rest of our lives, as we're pursuing knowing Christ and following him, God is transforming our character slowly and slowly and transforming our desires to become more and more like Christ's. Now, if you read about Paul's backstory, you read he did have a lot of things to be proud of, but he also had a lot of things that he was ashamed of. And I know that's true of me, and I'm sure that's true of you as well. But see, Paul didn't let either of those distract him. Instead, he says, forgetting what was in the past, I press forward to knowing Christ because he knew that Christ took care of his shameful past. And he knew that whatever things he was proud of in his past paled in comparison to pursue comparing to moving forward to really knowing Christ and walking with him. And the same can be true for you and me as well. And you see in the language of Paul here in this this passage of how he described his pursuit, that this was not a casual endeavor for Paul. He knew that God was the one that was transforming. He was very clear about that. But it was Paul who was mentally and physically disciplining himself to press forward to know Christ, to allow the power and grace of God to work in his life. This was not a, a minimum standard requirement kind of living. And this this was a very intentional, a very focused, a very whatever-it-takes pursuit to know Christ better and to become like him. Now, as you read what Paul writes here, you might be tempted to think, as I was, you know, wow, Paul, I mean, that's pretty incredible to read about that in your life, but isn't that kind of extreme? I mean, just a bit. And it's tempting to think that way because we often think we're the barometer for normal, don't we? I mean, when you say someone's abnormal, what you're saying is they're not like me, you know? Um, But listen to what Paul says next. He says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, or as we said, you could say mature, have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. So what Paul is saying here is, guys, yeah, you're right. There is a discrepancy. But if there is a discrepancy between my attitude and example and yours, it's not the discrepancy between normal and extreme. It's a discrepancy between immature and mature. You see, a mature person, according to Paul, is someone who boasts in Christ and not in their accomplishments. A mature person makes it their goal to know Christ as deeply and as richly as possible. And a mature person realizes that it is a lifelong process that should not be pursued half-heartedly or just when it's convenient. And to the extent that we have a different attitude about that, Paul would say, is to the extent that we have some maturing to do. Then Paul concludes the chapter by saying this, He says, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I'm often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Even these people, Paul was in tears over because he wanted them to know Christ. Whose end is destruction and whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame. Who set their minds on earthly things for our citizenship is in heaven, with whom, uh, who will, for our citizenship is in heaven. From whom also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. See, Paul reminds the Philippian Christians, and he reminds you and me who have decided to follow Jesus, that the reason we should imitate Paul's example. And the example of those who have made it their supreme goal to know Christ is because our true citizenship is not here. It's not here in America. It's not here wherever country that you're from originally. It's, It's in heaven. That's where our true citizenship lies. And heaven is where we're going to spend the majority of our existence. And this life is merely a drop in the bucket compared to all of eternity. But this life is preparation for all of eternity. We can't take our trophies, or our money, or our stuff, or our accomplishments in this life into heaven with us. That's why you never see a U-Haul following a hearse. I mean, all it needs is the body, and then they're going to bury that. But we can take with us the person we're becoming and the relationship with Jesus that we have developed. We can take that. We can take with us the person we're becoming and the relationship with Jesus that we have developed. So why not focus on what's actually going to last? Getting to know Jesus intimately and becoming more like him. And as a bonus, while this may not appeal to you now because most of you are fairly young and fit, but as a bonus, uh, when you get older, you'll appreciate this more. One day God is going to transform your decrepit, falling apart body (laughs) into his heavenly body with no more aches and pains, no more diseases, no more back surgeries. But that time hasn't come yet, but one day it will. So while our outer bodies will continue to fade and continue to break down day by day by day, the older you get, our inner person can become stronger and stronger as we make it our lifelong pursuit, just like Paul did, to know Christ. And this will lead to not only a more satisfying life, and a more joyful life, but it will lead to a much more impactful life, just like it did Paul's. And maybe not 2,000 years later, maybe only a few hundred years later, people might be telling stories about you because you're the person that chose to really go a different way than everybody else and make it your number one goal to really know Christ above all else. So let me pray for you guys and invite the band back up.